I read something once by a psychologist that said that the human soul has to feel safe and clean and significant. And I think what he meant by that was that in order to be happy, we have to have a sense of freedom, like we're valuable, that we don't have to walk around feeling ashamed or condemned. But many people, uh, the psychologist went on to say, are overshadowed by a lurking sense of judgment. Sometimes it's regret over a specific action. Sometimes people just can't quite put their finger on it, but it's this feeling that I'm not good enough. Or if people really knew the, me, the real me, they would reject me. One of the best literary de depictions of this thinking was by the German novelist uh, Franz Kafka in his work, The Trial. Kafka intended it to be a picture of the human soul going through life, and he talks about how some people have a voice inside of them telling them that they're not good enough. And his point is that if other people really saw who we are, they wouldn't like us. So that's the basis of our question today. Is there something wrong with me? And if so, what is it that keeps me from being happy? David opens Psalm 32 by saying, Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those who, whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. And again, the same word, joy, can also be translated happy. And it's the same word that opened Psalm 1 that we looked at last week. Happy are those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. The psalmist here is going to connect happiness with forgiveness. He's going to say that there is, in fact, something wrong with us. That feeling of shame and uneasiness has a grain of truth in it, even if it's distorted. And in order to be happy, we have to deal with it, but not in the way that we are typically used to dealing Verse 3, when I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. Day and night your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. The psalmist looks upward, and he connects this feeling of unhappiness, this sense of condemnation with God, and he is right to do that. When Adam and Eve first sinned in the Garden of Eden, they felt ashamed of their nakedness. And you may be thinking, hey, that's what normal people do when they're running around in their birthday suits, or at least that used to be that way. But the psalmist isn't talking about birthday suits, but about the feeling of soul nakedness that is ingrained in us from creation. And it all goes back to our relationship with God. Not all shame is legitimate. Sometimes shame comes from suffering or from abuse that has nothing to do with us. But we have this sense of soul judgment that comes from our separation with God. And just the realization of that is a gift from God. But not all guilt is bad. Sometimes it's like pain. We may think sometimes of pain as something always bad. But pain can actually be a help to us. If I'm holding my hand against a hot stove, I'm grateful for the pain that lets me know that I'm hurting myself. Guilt can also be God's messenger showing us that something isn't right in our life. And that's what the psalmist is experiencing. Maybe, maybe you're finally at a place in your life where you're able to see the harm 
that things like selfishness causes other people. Maybe you've lived a certain way for years and only recently you've begun to see the consequences of those actions. Maybe you remember this sense coming on you the first time someone explained to you the meaning of the Ten Commandments and explained that they were primarily issues of the heart. No other gods in our life. Obey authority. Stop covering or stop coveting what other people have. Don't be cheating on your spouse. And hatred in our heart often leads to murder. You see, the realization that something is wrong in our life is God's mercy toward us. The words of the song that many of us are familiar with, Amazing Grace, tell us, "'Tis grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." I don't know about you, but I don't often think of grace as something that makes me afraid. But God's grace works both to convict us of our sin and also to show us God's mercy. It's like when we first shine a light into a dark room, the light reveals what is there. So it is that before we can clean up what's torn up in our own life, we have to come face to face with what's broken. The first sign that the light of God is beginning to enter our soul is the feeling that day and night, as the psalmist said, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Then the psalmist goes on in verse 5. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. The psalmist is telling us how to be happy. So let me this morning offer five keys to finding happiness from this psalm. First, to find happiness, we must be honest about our sin. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve tried to cover up their sin. The first thing God did when he came to them was to call them out from their places of hiding and make them uncover themselves. And then God began to deal with their sin. He killed a lamb and he made the, them coverings and give, gave them a picture of how he would deal with their sin in the future. So in order for God to cover their sin, first he had to uncover it and they had to be honest with God. Secondly, to find happiness, we must own our sin. Several times in verse 5, the writer uses the word my. I acknowledge my sin, my guilt, my rebellion. But the first thing we typically do after our sin is exposed is we start to justify it, don't we? After the first sin in the Garden of Eden, after God brings Adam and Eve out of hiding and says to them, what have you done? Adam replies, the woman that you gave me made me eat it. In one sentence, Adam blames two people. He blames the woman and he blames God. Well, what does that look like for us? Maybe you say, well, the reason I'm like this is because of the situation I'm in. I've been treated badly, so that justifies my actions. Or maybe you say, I haven't had all the privileges that other people have. Or I've worked hard and I deserve more than I've been given. Or my wife isn't responsive to me, so that justifies my actions. Or what am I doing... Uh, what I'm doing is not really that bad, especially compared to other people or compared to how much good I've done in life. 
In other words, I've made enough deposits, I can afford a few withdrawals. You see, the truth is that we'll never be happy until we take responsibility for our actions. David acknowledged, yes, others have sinned against me, but I made my own choices in how I responded. Can we say that? It wasn't the woman that God gave me, or even the circumstances he put me in. I wasn't just hanging out with the wrong crowd. I was the wrong crowd. That's why I got along so well with them. In the words of Led Zeppelin, nobody's fault but mine. We need to own our own sin. Ever have someone apologize to you by saying, you know, I'm sorry that I did this, but you, and really what they're giving you is not an apology. It's a justification. It's frustrating. But God's forgiveness begins where our blame shifting ends. If we're going to get clean, we have to be transparent. We have to come out of hiding. Stop with the self-justification. Stop with the excuses and own the sin. Third, we have to find happiness. To find happiness, we must learn to hate our sin and not just its consequences. The word used for confession in the Old Testament implies something beyond what our English word confess means. Confess in the original language means seeing things from the perspective of the one that we've wronged. Not only are we admitting, we, uh, admitting the sin, we are changing our perspective to the perspective of the one that we've hurt. In our culture today, we often confess something, but we really don't feel any differently about it. <clears throat> the classic expression of this is, if I've offended you, I'm sorry meaning I'm not sorry for what I did. I'm sorry that you're upset about it. That's not repentance. It's a cheap, selfish attempt at making peace. Confess here in this psalm means now I see things, God, from your perspective. I see what I've done wrong. See, many people confess their sin and turn from it because the consequences are painful. They got caught. They're embarrassed. Life is painful. Their attitude toward the sin hasn't changed. It's not real confession. See the imagery in verse 9. Psalmist says, Do not be like the senseless horse or mule that needs a bit and a bridle to get it under control. When a mule, I don't know if any of you have been around mules lately, but when a mule consents to go with you, it's not because he loves you. It's not because he really wants to go where you're going. It's not because he's convinced of your superior wisdom. It's because the bit in his mouth that you're pulling on is painful. The psalmist says, don't be like that. God doesn't just want people to obey like mules. He wants people to obey from their hearts. He's He's not just after our obedience. He's after a whole new kind of attitude. See, a lot of people avoid sin because they're afraid of what others might think about them. If they get caught, they're not, it's not genuine repentance because we really don't hate the sin. We just don't want to be thought badly of by other people. So my question for you today is, if I threatened, if I threatened to put all of the sins that you've committed over the last month up here on the big screen this morning, would that be okay with you? Or would you be mortified? 
Would, you ever, would, you, would it change your behaviors? Would it make you stop sinning? Would it cause you to turn over a new leaf? You see, we know that God knows all about us. But does the idea that God knows everything about us bother us? For some of us, I'm afraid, people matter more to us than God. We'd be mortified if others knew us in that kind of detail. Because we care more about what others think than what God thinks. When our heart attitude toward the sin itself has not changed, then we haven't really confessed. Here's the fourth point. To find happiness, we must actually change direction. The psalmist has changed. He has confessed that he has seen the sin from God's perspective, and now in verse 10, he talks about his newfound trust in God. In verse 11, he expresses his new joy in God and new surrender to God, and here's the point. Where there is no change, there has been no confession. Listen to what the psalmist says. Many sorrows come to the wicked, but unfailing love surrounds those who trust the Lord. So rejoice in the Lord and be glad, all you who obey him. Shout for joy, all you whose hearts are pure. Just so you know, confession without change makes God really weary. Some of us do things and we've got just enough church culture in our blood that we feel like we need to go to church and make it up to God, you know, confess it. And I've known people through the years who who've gotten drunk on Saturday night, and they show up on Sunday morning with this huge hangover, and while they're in church, they're thinking, I hate Sundays. Well, you know what? God says, I hate them too. I hate Sundays because in the words of Jesus, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. So just so I'm clear, everyone is always welcome here at Redeemer on the weekend, no matter where you've been on Saturday night. But what God wants is not our attendance. He wants our repentance. He wants our heart. Now, to clarify, when I say that repentance and confession mean change, I don't mean that we're never going to sin again. Biblical confession is not perfection. It's, it's moving us in a new direction. We often fail. We're going to fall down. But every time we get up and we look toward God. And fifth and finally, to find happiness, we must hide in God. Look at verses 6 and 7. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time, that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. <clears throat> For you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. And again, going back to the Garden of Eden and the slaying of an animal, that is a picture of what Jesus did for us on the cross. He didn't just forget about our sin. He didn't just brush aside our sin. He defeated it. And I love that imagery. You surround me with songs of victory. When Jesus died on the cross, the Bible said he cried out with a loud voice, it is finished. I want you to imagine for just a moment that you, uh, someone that you love and care about very deeply is behind in their car payments. And you feel very generous today, and you go to the bank, and you pay off their car loan in full. And then you find out a month later that the bank has sent a collection agency out to take that car from them. My guess is you might do what I would do, and that's drive to the bank and say with a pretty loud voice, you can't take their car. I paid the debt. God did not just forgive our sin. He didn't just brush it aside. He defeated it. 
He paid the debt in full. And we have voices inside and outside of us all the time condemning us for our sin. And Jesus doesn't deny that what they're saying is true sometimes. He just cries out with a louder voice. I have paid their sin debt, and you have no more claim over them. See, the way that we get rid of the internal voices of guilt and, is not to ignore them or argue with them, but to drown them out with the louder shouts of God's word. The enemy of our souls comes to us, and he will say to us, you messed up. You're no good. There's no hope for you. But the Apostle Paul shouts out in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The enemy comes to us and he says, you have no future. God says, I know the plans that I have for you. They are plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. The enemy comes to us and he says, you're a thief. You're a failure. You're a liar. You're untrustworthy. And Jesus shouts out, some of you, yes, we're like that, but you are washed and you are justified and you are sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus. You see, the, the way to get rid of those internal voices of guilt and shame and remorse is not to ignore them or argue with them, but to drown them out with the louder shouts of God's word. You say, Rod, I know all that. I know that I'm forgiven, but you know what? Some days I don't feel forgiven. I can't forgive myself for some of the things I've done. But you know what? When you say that, you are showing that someone else's voice is louder in your life than God's voice. Maybe your standard or what other people think about you, but God's opinion is all that matters. And if God says, you are my son, you are my daughter, in whom I am well pleased, that is all we need to hear. Let me close this morning by showing you two quick things. The first is a warning, and it's in verse 6. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time, that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. For you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. The psalmist is telling us that seek God while he can be found because there is coming a time when we can't. There's coming a time when the waters of judgment will come like a flood and sweep away all of this world's evil and wickedness. But right now we have a chance for God's mercy. There's coming a time when we will no longer be able to call on God for mercy. But right now, that groaning that's in our soul that the psalmist feels is, is God's wake-up call to us. The feelings of guilt and the bad things that are happening in our life, they're ju they just might be God's mercy to you, saying, hey, wake up. They're not paying us back for something we've done wrong in our life. They're trying to bring us back to God. God's not trying to beat you down. He's trying to raise you up to new life. But if we reject his love and his grace, we will face judgment. And the truth is, we can only hide from God by hiding in God. And the second part of this is a litmus test. After we find the happiness of mercy and forgiveness, we will start feeling love for God and we'll start feeling compassion toward other people. Look at verse 8. The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. 
I will advise you and watch over you. Do not be like the senseless horse or mule that needs a bit and bridle to keep it under control. Many sorrows come to the wicked, but unfailing love surrounds those who trust the Lord. So rejoice in the Lord and be glad, all you who obey him. Shout for joy, all you whose hearts are pure. Psalmist is talking about his love for God, his joy in God, and he's glad in the Lord. Jesus said that all those who are forgiven learn to love much. Those who don't love God much, it's because they've never come to realize how much they've been forgiven. And you may be saying, I don't have a passionate love for God, and I'd like to change that. Well, the way we do that is to have God open our eyes to see how much God has forgiven us and how much he has saved us from and what extravagant love he's poured into our life and then let that love flow out naturally from our lives into the lives of others. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, when we think too lightly of sin, we think too lightly of the Savior. He who has stood before God, convicted and condemned, with the rope around his neck, is the person to weep for joy when he is pardoned, to hate the evil which has been forgiven, and to live to the honor of the Redeemer by whose blood he has been cleansed. The psalmist says, unfailing love surrounds me. Assurance of the steadfast love of God produces in us steadfast love for others. The psalmist also has, changed, has a changed attitude toward other people. In verses 8 through 11, the psalmist is addressing others. He wants to help people as he's been helped. He's talking about wanting to help others who are struggling with sin. People who have received mercy tend to speak to others with tenderness and gentleness that flows from that deep forgiveness inside. Does that describe you today? Do others feel safe even in their weaknesses? around you if you're aware of God's grace in your life you know what other people will be too the sign that you have experienced the mercy of God in your life is your mercy toward other people how vulnerable with others are you about your own sin if you have experienced the joy of forgiveness you don't mind letting people see your faults because your happiness doesn't depend on maintaining the illusion that you're perfect do you receive criticism well? If you've had the experience of being deeply forgiven, you won't mind when someone points out your sin because you're well, well aware of it. You're not trying to hide behind the mask of your own goodness because God's mercy is your hiding place. And you'll share your faults so that others can find that same hiding place for their soul. Do you want to be happy? It's found in forgiveness. Because happiness is found in God. It's not being guilt-free that makes us happy. It's being reconciled into our relationship with God. It's not just forgiveness for forgiveness' sake. It's forgiveness that reconciles us to God that is the key to happiness. Happiness is found in reconciliation because happiness is found in God. People generally fall into two errors when it comes to God's mercy. There are those of us who think... Uh, who feel like we're good enough, that we really don't need God's forgiveness, and there are those who feel that they're so bad that they can never attain God's forgiveness. For those of you who may feel that you're good enough, that you really don't need God's deep forgiveness, I pray that God will open your eyes today to how sinful we all are and how much we are in need of God's mercy. 
And I pray you'll stop covering your sin, both to yourself and others, so that God can cover it with his grace. And to those who think that they're too bad to ever attain God's forgiveness, I pray that God will open your eyes as to how wide and deep and high the love of God is for you, how extravagant his grace is in sending Jesus to the cross, how sufficient his sacrifice was for our sins, and how powerful his resurrection from the dead was on our behalf, and how ready the Holy Spirit is to stand and fill us with power. How much mercy God now reaches out into each of our lives. That's my prayer for you today. Let's pray. God, our hearts are blessed as we have gathered in your presence today. You have given us uh, freedom from our sins, and you've given us joy in exchange for a heavy heart. You are the refuge that we seek when we're troubled and the courage we need when we uh, face each day of our life. So bless us today with your steadfast love because we are putting our trust and our hope in you.